Well, those of you that have children are right in the middle of summer vacation right now, almost smack dab in the middle. School is maybe a month and a half away. Maybe we're almost a month and a half from school, so you're right in the middle of it. And maybe, perhaps, you have heard your kids occasionally say, I'm bored over summer vacation. When I was younger and in the middle of summer vacation, we did not have television on demand so that you could choose what you were to watch when you were to watch it. We did not have Netflix. You know, I mean, back in that day, we walked uphill both ways to school in the snow, that sort of thing, right? But we didn't have television on demand. And so if you were going to watch something in particular, you had to watch it when they scheduled it and when it was going to show on television. And so during the summer, as best I could and as much as my parents would allow me to, I tried to schedule my days around the 10 a.m. to noon time slot on television. Why? Because from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., The Wonder Years was on, and at 11 a.m., The Price is Right was on. (laughs) And that was a glorious two hours during my childhood in the summer. And I'll tell you, I never could, as a kid, actually guess the price of the items on The Price is Right. I couldn't do it. But now, that would be right up my alley. I think I could guess the price pretty accurately. When you're a kid, you're not the one going to the grocery store and actually using your money to buy the items. You're just telling your parents what to get from the grocery store, so you have no idea what things cost. What does a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch cost? But when you're the one using your own money to buy things and you're shopping in the grocery store from time to time, you pay much more careful attention to what things actually cost. I Pay more careful attention to what a jar of pickles costs these days. It's $3.99, in case you're wondering. For Tony Paco's pickles, that's what it costs. And when you think about valuing something and how much things cost, and is it worth it to spend that much money on this particular item, you don't think about it as much when you're a kid. But as you grow older in life, and even as a kid, we put a particular value on things all the time. Really, that's how we go through life. We decide, is it worth it to spend my time participating in this activity? Will there be some value that I get back out of that? We do it all the time. Is this car worth this price? Is it worth my time to do this? And whether you realize it or not, the functional evaluations that you make every day come from your big picture goals and values. What you consider worthwhile to spend your life doing will shape what you decide is worth it to spend your time and your money in every day in your small decisions. That's how it goes. Even if you don't answer those type of big picture questions by writing out the answers, even if it's unstated, your values, your big picture goals will shape the choices that you make, the things that you value in small ways every single day. That's how it works. And if you think about it, if, you're, if you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of Mark, this entire section really has been built on this concept of what is worth it to spend your life doing. Is it worth it to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Christ? Is it actually going to come back to you and be worth your time and worth your life? I mean, if you go back to Mark chapter 8, the very beginning of this section on discipleship, I put it on the screen here so that you could see it. 
I mean, look how Jesus starts this whole section. I mean, he lays it out for us. This is what the whole thing is about. Chapter 8, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 10, this journey of discipleship where the disciples are learning at the feet of Jesus, this is what he says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? There's an evaluation process happening there. Is it actually worth it to deny yourself, to give up your life, to commit yourself to following Jesus Christ? And Jesus says, It is ultimately of no profit and no gain to you as a person to gain the entire world, to get everything you want for. If you, you want in this life, if you made a list of the things that would bring you satisfaction and the things that you want to get out of your 80 or 90 years or whatever on this earth, if you got everything that you were looking for, it wouldn't be worth it if you ended up forfeiting your own soul. The valuation of that, the evaluation of that is, does not match up. And he starts this whole section this way. And everything in this section is sort of laced with this idea of value and of worth it and of evaluation. And so the evaluations you make in this life determine where you spend the next life, where you spend eternity. And so this morning, if you're not there yet, open up to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And you're going to see this played out in a very dramatic way this morning, this evaluation process. Is it worth it? And you're going to meet a man, you're probably familiar with this man, and he has to answer this question of worth and value. Is the kingdom of such value that I will give up whatever is most dear and most important to me, that I'm willing to part with it, earthly riches, earthly wealth, whatever it may be on this earth, so that I can inherit eternal life, so that I can follow Jesus? That's the question that this man has to deal with. And that's the question that we want to evaluate in our own lives this morning. We want to learn from what happens in this story. So this morning, we're going to see three lessons concerning the value of entering the kingdom of God. Three lessons concerning the value of entering the kingdom of God. It's from Mark chapter 10. Verses 17 to 31, and again, a very familiar story, I think, to you. But the first one of these lessons is that the pursuit of the kingdom, the desire to enter the kingdom, is worth it. It's a worthy endeavor to want this and to desire this. Look with me at verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey... Now, the wording here is very specific that this is his journey. This is the journey that he has been on, right? It's the way, the way of discipleship, the way from north of Israel down through Galilee. Now he's on the west or the east side of the River Jordan heading toward Jerusalem and Jericho. He's headed that way to the cross. He's on this journey. And while he's on this journey, he's teaching his disciples about their journey of following him in discipleship and where that will end up for them and what that looks like. And so he's on this journey, and this interaction here is a part of that journey and a part of learning about discipleship. It's within that context. 
And so here he and the disciples get up one morning, apparently, and they're getting ready to set out and to cover some more miles on their way to Jerusalem. And when they do this, a man runs up to them. Look at the rest of verse 17. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this isn't flattery. He's not calling Jesus good teacher to try to get on his good side, I don't think. He has a high opinion of Jesus. I mean, he wants to know. I think it's an earnest and important question that this guy is asking. There's no reason to read it otherwise. He wants to inherit. I mean, what does it mean to inherit something? It's to gain possession of something. After a loved one, a parent dies, you gain possession of their earthly goods, their property, their house, whatever it may be. And he says here, I want to gain possession. I want to inherit eternal life. I don't think he's asking in a works-based way. I think he wants to know, what do I have to do? What What does it require of me to gain possession of eternal life? It's clearly a good thing for this man to consider this. He wants to be sure. And so Jesus answers him. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is pretty typical of Jesus, right? Sort of enigmatic here. Doesn't give like a direct answer to the question. For this man. But the the point here is he's not suggesting that somehow God the Father is the only one good and Jesus is not good. He's not sinless. That's not, don't read into that here. That's not what he's suggesting. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get this man to evaluate his own ideas about goodness, really about value and about what is worth it. Even the most wicked people on this earth have a sense of what they think is good. Now, it's perverted, it's skewed, but they act based on some value system on what's important and what is good. And this man, no doubt, has that as well. And so Jesus wants him to recognize his own value system, and he calls him to consider what is good. I think the other thing Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, if you're going to think about eternal life, you have to think about God. And you have to think about eternal life in relation to God because that's who ultimately eternal life is all about. It's about your relationship with him. You need to consider God. You can't have one without the other. And so he wants the man to think about those things. But he also responds further in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father. And mother. Now, it's an interesting list here. If you're looking at it in a little more detail, you recognize that these are some of the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, you, you know that. You know the Ten Commandments. And he adds an additional command in here that's not part of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud. And the idea there is do not take from someone what is rightfully owed to them. Why does he add this in here? Well, this was a sin that rich people were particularly prone to. Perhaps Jesus is trying to identify where this man has stumbled in his life. I don't really know why he includes it in here. Uh, James chapter 5 describes this process of defrauding from someone who has money to those that don't have as much, who are working for for wages. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So maybe this was something that was... In this man's life, defrauding workers who had been working his fields. But ultimately what Jesus does here is lists commandments from the second portion 
of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, and all of these commandments have to do with this man's relationships with other people, interpersonal relationships. So, when you see Jesus do this here, it's, it's a little confusing. What, what's going on? I mean, is he telling this guy, listen, if you will just keep these commandments, then you will be able to go to heaven and you will inherit eternal life. Is Jesus a functioning legalist here? Is he promoting a works-based salvation for this man? Well, you know the answer to that. Of course, he's not teaching legalism. And here's the important thing for you to know. The Old Testament scriptures do not teach legalism. This is, Jews did not believe, your average Jew did not believe that if you just were able to keep all of the law, that you could go to heaven. They're not legalists in that sense. That's not how the law functioned for the Jewish people. I mean, the Ten Commandments begin with a very clear statement of God's grace in saving the Jewish people from Israel. He redeemed them, and therefore, as a response to that, they ought to obey these commandments. This is what was expected of a normal Jew who was responding to God's gracious covenant with them. This is a necessary response under the Old Covenant. They were to obey the law that God gave them. I mean, you see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Do these things as you enter into the land, not to earn favor with God, but because you've been shown favor with God. They did this ultimately, hopefully, out of faith. I think this is where the Pharisees often went wrong. They believed God's word, the Jews did, they were supposed to, and they obeyed his commandments. And this is the goal of every Jew. And so how does this man respond to what was normal of Jews here? Look at verse, or what was to be expected of Jews here. Look at verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, we read this and we're like, okay, God, come on. Really? I don't think there's any reason to doubt his sincerity. I don't think he was sinlessly perfect, but I think he looked at his life. He looked at his attempt to obey these commandments. And I think people often interpret this as a response of arrogance, but there's no reason to assume that this guy was, was arrogant here. I think he was genuine. He looked at his life and he thought, I really have tried. I mean, as best my ability, I've done these things. And it's interesting that Paul makes a very similar statement in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So if Paul says this, I mean, I think this guy probably is saying something similar. Look, I've, I've tried. But when you read this, you have to think about who this man is talking to. Of course, Jesus is not saying if you do these things, you'll earn salvation. You have to read this in light of what Jesus says to this man next and where the conversation goes next. Because when you read this statement and this man's response, the very person who fulfills the Old Testament law is standing right in front of this man. The one to whom the entire law points, the reason for the law to exist, to bring us to Christ as the fulfillment of the law, he is standing there in front of this man. The whole Old Testament points to him. This guy can't merit salvation through keeping the law, but he has to respond to the law 
by following the one to whom the law points. That's what's necessary for this man. He has to go a step beyond being a good Jew. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Come after me. That is what is missing from this man. Give up that which has a hold on your heart and follow me. So in other words, this man's knowledge of the law, his obedience to the Old Testament law, should have led him to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and to follow him. He should have been able to see that this man was the true Messiah who was come. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to give it up and to follow him, to deny self, to take up your cross, to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is clearly connecting, following him, and inheriting eternal life here. This is the answer to this man's question. So he gives him four commands there. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. That's very similar to Mark chapter 8, what we read earlier, isn't it? Take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Followers of Christ lay everything aside for him. Why? What's interesting here is, in this whole process of evaluation, look at what Jesus promises this man in verse 21. We're considering the value of the kingdom. Look at verse 21. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. The only way to gain eternal life, to inherit treasure in heaven, is to deny your life on earth. You give up your own ambition. You give up your own sense of security that is found in the things of this world, in earthly riches, and you cast yourself wholly on Christ because you need him. He's the Messiah. And when you do that, when you commit to him, you will find that that transaction, denying and losing, ends up in your favor. You will gain treasure in heaven when you do that. It comes out to your credit very much. And that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes it worth it to give up this this life and to deny self and to be servant of all and last of all in this life. This is what makes it worth it. But it isn't easy, is it? (laughs) It's not easy at all to make that proper evaluation. Our sinful hearts twist and distort these promises. They distort the value of the kingdom of heaven, of God. We don't see the worth and the value in it. And instead, our eyes are filled with earthly things. And so we don't make the proper evaluation. There are obstacles to this. And that's our second lesson. The pursuit of the kingdom is worth it. There is value, immense value in this. The man starts out right by being concerned about it. He wants to know. He's genuinely interested here. And when he finds out the value system that Christ is working on, there are obstacles. The obstacles to the kingdom are worth it, are powerful. I shouldn't have wrote worth it. It's powerful there. Sorry. The obstacles to the kingdom are powerful. Powerful. So when you read this, people often struggle with Christ's words here. He says some interesting things. This is a a fascinating interaction, but it's a little confusing. I mean, think about what Jesus has just said in this passage, in these first few verses. He seemed 
People sometimes read him as saying, no one is good but God. Jesus isn't good, and somehow people read that into this, right? He's asking the man, have you kept the commandments? Okay, well, now we're starting to think maybe Jesus thinks you can earn salvation by keeping the commandments. Then he says to this man, sell everything and follow me. And so is this passage teaching those things, that Jesus is somehow less than God, that we have to keep the commandments to inherit eternal life? And is Jesus teaching here that you and I have to sell everything this afternoon, give it all up, give it to the poor in order to be a disciple of Christ? I mean, is that what's going on in this passage here? Is that the way we should read this? And I think what Jesus is doing here in this conversation is he's revealing the particular desires and idols in this man's heart. He's, he's pinpointing what it is that this man will not be willing to give up, what it is that has a hold on this man's heart that will keep him from making the proper evaluation of the worth of the kingdom, what will keep him from taking up his cross. What's interesting here, go back to verse 21 and just real quick, and then we'll get to verse 22. But it's interesting in verse 21 that Jesus looks at him. It's like a long, lingering look, like an evaluation of this man. And he loved him. He's concerned for this man. Here's a man who's asking genuine questions, who's committed himself to a lifestyle of obedience. But sincerity and a good moral life will not place us on the road of discipleship. Jesus will not have followers who are good people and are depending on anyone and anything else other than him. It's not what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. It's not Jesus and. It's not, yeah, I'm I'm a good person. I keep these commands and I even like Jesus. And I love wealth. And I love my sense of security. Jesus is not a husband who will let his bride seek security in the arms of anyone else. That's not how he operates. That's not what it looks like to be his disciple. And he's going to pinpoint the very things that will keep us from following him full tilt with no reservations. And sadly, many people come to this question, the question of, is saving my soul worth fill in the blank? Whatever it is for you, something specific for this man, can be a variety of things for lots of different people. Is saving my soul worth giving up this? And they answer with a resounding no. They don't believe the promise of treasure in heaven, and they make an evaluation based on earthly riches and earthly security and earthly wealth. And that's exactly what this man does here. Look at 22. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And the description here is fascinating. His face becomes cloudy and dark. He's considering this, and he doesn't like what he's hearing. This is the one thing that he couldn't and wouldn't do. He's not interested in this. He found his security in his great wealth, in his land, in his houses, in his servants, in his possessions. And his brain could not make the calculation that giving all of this up would be worth it. He could not imagine living life without his possessions. What would life look like if he were to give all of this up? He was no longer the rich benefactor. He was no longer the guy blessing those who didn't have as much as he did. He would have to follow Christ 
not have a home, not have a place to stay. I mean, what, what would that look like for him? He couldn't imagine doing that. He couldn't imagine being that type of a person, living life without being wealthy. It just didn't work for him. And so Jesus sees this reaction and takes this very vivid illustration of someone not being willing to deny self, and he presses this on the disciples. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around. I love that. It's like he looks at the disciples and he's, he's going, okay, you've seen it happen. Are you guys going to make the same decision? Are you guys going to go where this man goes? Are you going to have the same mentality that this man has? And he looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples you have to understand, they were used to thinking of wealth as a sign of God's blessing. That's how they understood it. So these words are crazy to them. I mean, it's like he's speaking a different language here. How difficult? Are you kidding me? We thought that wealthy people actually were already in God's favor, and they were just a step away from entering the kingdom. And so look how they respond in verse 24. And the disciples were amazed. They're shocked by his words. They don't even, they don't have a shelf for that book. They can't, they can't calculate this equation. It doesn't make sense to them. And Jesus does not back down. Look at the rest of verse 24. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't back down here. And he gives them this very vivid illustration. Now, just to be clear here, okay, maybe you've heard that the camel going through the eye of a needle is a little gate in the side of the wall of Jerusalem, a smaller gate inside of a bigger gate, and a camel could get through this by getting on his knees and going through the gate, and that was showed humility, and if a rich person will just humble themselves and come to Christ, that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no such gate. There's no evidence of a gate like that. That is not how it works. This is exactly what Jesus says it is. He is thinking of the smallest opening that they would have known of, which would be the eye of a needle that you thread a very tiny thread through. And he's thinking of the largest animal that they were aware of, a camel. And he's saying, this is what it's like for a rich person to give up their attachment to their riches and to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like this. Think of the illustration Jesus gave of cutting your arm off when it comes to sin. Do whatever you have to do. Now, he doesn't mean to literally cut your arm off, but it's a hyperbole, and he's making a statement. This is significant. This is important, and it is difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom. In some ways, it's impossible for wealthy people to enter the kingdom. And look what he says. Look how the disciples respond. In verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They understood the weight of what he was saying. Rich people don't get into heaven. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, does that sit wrong with you? Are you a little uncomfortable right now? You're waiting for the caveat to come down the line. The disciples were uncomfortable too. They knew the stakes were high here and they knew what Jesus was saying. In their minds, this man was the perfect candidate to enter the kingdom and to be a disciple, right? 
He was sincere. He followed the law. He was rich, which was a sign of God's blessing. Maybe they even thought, hey, we'll get a little kickback if this guy becomes a follower. If this guy can't get into heaven, then who can? That's exactly the point. Look at verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It is impossible with men. Why? Because our desires are too bent out of shape. We find our security in riches far too easily. It's so natural for us to depend on money and on property and on wealth. It comes far too easily to us. We don't want to deny self. We don't want to take up our cross. We will not make the right evaluation on our own. None of us will. We will not value the treasure of heaven because it's unseen. We will not value it more than earthly riches. We won't come to that conclusion. We can't do it on our own. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not savvy enough. And I'm not either. God has to work. He must shine the light of the glory of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done into our hearts in order for us to make the proper evaluation, to come to this conclusion, to value the kingdom of heaven. He has to open our eyes to this. Now, Jesus has said a lot about wealth here, okay, and about money and about possessions. So let's think back about this a little bit because. He describes this here as a significant obstacle to entering the kingdom of heaven. And we have to wrestle with what he says. There are other obstacles, no doubt about it. We could probably find a number in our hearts. But he goes pretty hard after earthly wealth here. Why? Why does he do this? Well, let me just say... Here comes the caveat. I don't think the command in verse 21 to sell all that you have and give to the poor is required for all of us. But let me say this, and this is a challenge to my own heart. The very fact that we are all or most of us are concerned that Jesus actually might be asking us to do that is reason enough to take this command seriously. And it's reason enough for us to consider what it would look like to do this in our own lives and what this indicates about the role that wealth plays in our lives. The fact that my heart goes, no way, (laughs) probably means that wealth and money and security that comes from it plays too big a role in my life. And it's too important to me. And I think that's exactly why Jesus says the things he says here. And so let me press this a little further on us in my own heart, too. Let me remind you of the time and place that we live in, because that shapes us. Our culture, our economic system is it's literally built on the idea that the more people buy and the more people spend, the better off we will all be. And that's literally how our society functions. The more people buy goods and consume them, the better the economy will be and the better lives we will all have. That's how things work. And the point of me saying that is not to say capitalism is bad. It has brought some wonderful realities into our lives. People are being lifted out of poverty because of capitalism. In some ways, it's a wonderful thing. But we have to recognize the impact that our system can have on us. We assume We think it's normal to just buy and buy and buy and consume and consume and consume. 
Greed looks normal to us. And I think that's why the words of Jesus should be so concerning and so powerful in our hearts to evaluate these things. We don't even think of our hearts as greedy. I don't think of myself as greedy. I don't think of myself as attached to my stuff in the same way that this man was here. The problem with this man, as is very evident from this passage, is that he found his security, his significance in his possessions. They were more important to him than eternal life, than the next life. His stuff held total sway in his heart. And he couldn't imagine living without all of his stuff, with less stuff. And so it didn't matter if he kept all the commandments from his youth up. And apparently he'd been a pretty good moral guy. But his heart was in the vice grip of avarice. That's an old word that talks about greed. It's an inordinate desire for possessions. It's not having things that is the problem in the bigger picture of the Bible. It's an inordinate attachment to those possessions. When those possessions rule my heart and life, that's avarice. That's greed. And so this man ended up worshiping things rather than God. And so I think when we think about greed, that word, there's a couple things that come to mind, right? We sort of go to extremes. I do to not think of myself as, as greedy, okay? I, when I think of greed, I think about the young Wall Street executive who has so much money that he's wiping his nose with $100 bills and just throwing them away, right? Like he's just decadent. All this money, cars, everything you can imagine, right? That's one extreme. The other extreme is we think of the extreme hoarder who is so attached to stuff that there's piles and piles of it in his or her house, and they can't even move around. And we think, man, that's a weird attachment to stuff. Can't even function normally because of their attachment to stuff. And so we tend to think of those extremes And we don't recognize our own inordinate desire for things and the grip that things and possessions have on our hearts. And here's the bottom line. The obstacle of wealth has power because we believe the lie that it will bring us security and satisfaction and that it is more valuable than inheriting eternal life, than the value of eternal life. We believe that lie. And so what do we do? We fight that lie with the promises of Jesus Christ. The promise that there will be treasure in heaven for followers of Christ. And the promise that you're going to see here in the last few verses. The rewards of the kingdom are abundant. So the pursuit of the kingdom is worth it. Sorry, the second one, the obstacles to the kingdom are powerful. Not worth it. And then the last lesson here is the rewards of the kingdom are abundant. Here's the promise that we have to hold on to and cling to. So after all of these very clear and strong statements, our man Peter makes an observation in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now this one, you could probably be, this you probably interpret this one as having a touch of smugness here. I think Peter's probably seeing this man leave over his attachment to earthly possessions, over the idols in his heart. And Peter's looking at the disciples and saying, hey, we left everything and we followed you. Not like this guy. I mean, he was a good guy, but look what we've done. I think there's probably a touch of that here in Peter. 
And Jesus responds to him, and I think in some ways very graciously doesn't rebuke him straight up, but he gives us the whole way in which this is to be evaluated. Here is the bottom line for the kingdom and for earthly possessions, all right? Verse 29, Jesus said, truly, we see that statement again, right? This is, a, this is important. This is significant. We saw it last time. Truly, I say to you, here's the bottom line. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And the point is this, when you deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow Jesus when he holds the key to your heart, the benefits outweigh the losses. You will have to give up significant pieces of earthly life in many cases, but the benefits outweigh the losses. And the items here, look at verse 29, the items that are listed are some of the most valuable things that we have in this life, right? I mean, a place to live and people to love. That's what he's describing here. And there are those who are required to give up those things. And we all ought to be willing, if necessary, to give up those things for Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And when we do that, it's a good assessment. It's a good evaluation. You've gotten it right when you do that. Why? Because of verse 30. When you do that, who will not receive a hundredfold And there's two areas in which you'll receive this. You'll receive it in the present and in the future. Now in the present time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. What is that talking about? I think it's talking about the relationships and the community that we have with others who are following Jesus Christ. It's this church. It's the people who are here and who are also pursuing Christ in the same way. And I think this description here is why the relationships and the community in the church body are so significant and so important to our spiritual lives. When you give up other things to take up this cross and to follow Christ, you get riches beyond imagination in many ways. And we ought to value these relationships that we have. This is what ties us together. It's the gospel and it's Jesus Christ. So let's center on those things and value those things. So you receive benefits now in this life, probably not earthly riches and earthly wealth, but certainly benefits of community and relationships. But beyond that, at the end of this, he says, in the age to come, eternal life. This is gaining your soul by losing your life. This is what he was talking about in chapter 8. This is laying up reward in heaven while losing earthly wealth. And it's interesting that he uses the word eternal life, the phrase eternal life here. That's what the rich man was pursuing, wasn't it? That's what he asked about at the very beginning of this. And Jesus circles back around and says, this is how it happens. It's giving up. It's being willing to give it up to follow Christ. But it won't be easy. Look what is also included in verse 30. All these relationships, houses, lands with persecutions. When you live this way... You are weird in many ways, and there will be persecutions for Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Now, all of this 
These rewards, these losses, the evaluation, all of this happens by the grace of God, by a reorientation of values and desires. Look at verse 31. This is how he ends. But here's the mentality. Many who are first will be last and the last first. To be a disciple means to have everything turned upside down. To look at the world, to look at possessions, to look at relationships in a completely different way. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. To see things differently. A radical reorientation of how we view ourselves and how we view those around us and how we view possessions. So how does that reorientation happen? You and I can't do this on our own. It only happens through God's gracious work in our hearts. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So come to him, rely on him, see the promises that he gives for treasure in heaven and relationships on earth that are a hundredfold more important than those that you've lost and trust those promises and believe that evaluation system. Let's pray. Father, we want to make the right evaluation, but we can't do it on our own. It is impossible with us. Our hearts are too bent. They're too attached to earthly possessions. And so we need you. We need you to work. We need you to make the gospel glorious in our hearts. We need the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross, rose from the dead, showing his victory over sin and death, ascended to the Father, and now reigns in heaven. We need that news, those truths to penetrate our hearts and to become valuable to us. And that only happens by your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would work in our hearts to make that happen, Father. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for these words from Mark 10. We love you. In his name we pray. Amen.